Now, we are in our Psalm Song series, very excited about the song and how it fits so relevantly and um, well into the service today. If you know this song, feel free to sing along. to another installment of Psalm Songs. Uh, I'm very excited to share with you today. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor, if you don't already know who I am. And as, uh, as Pastor Joe mentioned, we were in Pigeon Forge this past weekend for our, uh, our, for our regional conference, and that was an amazing 
amazing time. And in staff meeting before we left, Pastor Joe said, hey, I'm not going to preach this week. Um, so I don't want to stress out about, about doing that while I'm down there. So he made me stress out about it instead. So while everyone's having a great time, I'm just locked away in my hotel room, slaving away at my laptop, trying to... Re- no, that's not true. Because I am this excited to share this with you. I have had this on my mind for like a year. At the end of last year's Psalm Song series, I was like, I've got one, finally, finally. And then it's over. So, you know, there we have it. But um, I'm very, very excited to share with you. I love that song. I happened to be uh, going for a run this morning at the gym, which I don't do every day, so I'm not that great. But um, I, was, I was already listening to like my punk emo Spotify list, and I was just getting in the headspace. I'm ready for some All-American Rejects this morning, and I'm very excited about that. So I, I love it because the, the, the bridge of that song says something to this effect. The way she feels inside... These thoughts I can't deny. These sleeping dogs won't lie. And all I've tried to hide, it's eating me apart. Trace this life back. And so as you, as you see that, we see that the, the tone of the song is kind of varied, right? Because on the one hand, as you're going through the verses and the chorus, he's like, dude, whatever we're doing, whoever he's talking to, he said, I'll keep you my secret. Nobody needs to know. We'll just, you know, you'll just be another regret if you tell anybody. And he says, you know, when we live such fragile lives, we just need this kind of stuff. It's the best way that we survive. But then you get to the bridge. And the bridge is something else completely when he, when he puts all that stuff forward. And so clearly something is bothering him. As much as he tries to play it off and play it cool, this stuff is eating at him. So we are going to go to a psalm. Uh, Psalm chapter 38, you can go ahead and flip there um, in your Bible if you have your Bible app. But if you don't have those, we always put it up on the screen so that you can follow along. But we're going to go to a psalm where David was being torn apart by something. There was something that he was doing. There was something that he had done, something he was experiencing. And he's a mess, honestly. He's, He's just a mess. But you'll see that as we read through it. So Psalm 38, 1 through 11. This is David's prayer, David's song. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. From sunup to sundown, all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all of my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me in the light of my eyes. It also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. So David's in a good mood, right? This is, no, this is a dark psalm. This is a drab psalm. And honestly, as you read through the rest of it, there's not really like a resolution point. You know how sometimes you'll read a psalm and David's going on and on and he's saying all these things. And then he's like, but I will remember the goodness of the There's none of that. There's none of that in this psalm if you keep on reading. So it's drab. He's feeling the weight of his sin. He's feeling God's response to it. He's feeling the effects of sin over time on himself, on his relationships, to his relationship with God, and so on and so forth. So today, as we go through this psalm, I want to talk to you about sin and secrets, and I want to talk to you about confession and healing. 
And so just so you know kind of how we're going to do this, how we're going to structure it, a question we ask around here is, what does the Bible say about what the Bible says? And me personally, in my you know, limited intellectual capacity, I can't really stay in the Psalms very well. I, I find myself having to like pull things from here and there to kind of back up what we're saying. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to go one, two, three on down the line and go on that ride together. Okay. So the first thing that I want to share with you that we see in the Psalm is that dirty little secrets become big, festering wounds. One of the first battles that you and I have to face on our way to healing, on our way to freedom, and on our way to forgiveness is to really put sin into its proper perspective. And I know that, you know, culture is trying to make sin this really antiquated term and, and make you sound like you're being all judgy if you talk about sin. But we have to think about what it really truly is, and we have to put it into perspective. We don't want to make too much of it, but we definitely don't want to downplay it, and we don't want to make too little of a thing about it. So what that means for us, I believe, is that we have to get away from this idea that our sin is just a dirty little secret. That it's, it, it's, it's, it's just a pet sin. It's just a little thing I do. It's something I've got under control. It doesn't really affect anybody. It doesn't really affect me that much. It's not that bad. Because honestly, the moment that you get there, and I can say this from experience, and a lot of, other, a lot of you could probably say this too, the moment you think you've got it figured out, the moment that you're like, okay, you know, I, I used to battle this, but now I'm done. You start kind of looking down your nose at people and you start judging people who do the stuff that you used to do and think the stuff that you used to think. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just hits you out of nowhere. Because when you get in that place where you are confident, you are overconfident, you're a little cocky about how you've dealt with it and you're a little judgy about how other people are dealing with it, that's when it likes to come. So David writes that his wounds stink and fester. That imagery is, is, is so very important because it's, it's not just a minor inconvenience to David, okay? As you get older, I'm, I'm in my 30s now, and I know some of you are like, dude, just wait. I know, I know, just wait. But like at this age, I have more aches and pains than I ever did. My, you know, my metabolism is slower than it's ever been, and you know, as, as things are going on. But he's not talking about that. He is talking about a wound, like an open wound that is stinking and festering. He is talking about being set back by it. He's talking about being unhealthy. He's talking about how it stinks and it festers and there's no strength in him. He is incapacitated by this stuff that's been going on in his life. And there is something in that attitude towards sin that we have to pick up on. Because sin is not just a little vice, it's not just a, little, a dirty little secret. It is a killer and it is a cancer. Okay, sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, sin is not just a list of, of God's pet peeves that he has arbitrarily decided, well, I like this and I don't like that, so I'm going to make that a sin and, and send people to hell for that. It's not that. Okay, I heard someone recently describe sin as a he, the way you put it is it's, it's settling for less than God's best. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I first heard that, I was like, That's, that just kind of sounds pithy. And I don't even, what does that even mean? But then I thought about it a little bit. And I thought about how we do that because there is a way that God designed us to live and he wants to invite us to live in. And then there's the way that we live because we get impatient and because we want what we want right now, how we want it, where we want it, when we want it. Okay. And so we, we see a couple things play out. Instead of, instead of enjoying the perfect union of marital sex and enjoying it in that capacity, we settle for things like pornography and adultery. 
Instead of, instead of having a, a healthy body that is, that is disciplined and in and, and shape and strong and able to take care of you and fight off sickness and all the rest of it, we, we indulge ourselves. And, and, and this is where like gluttony comes in and we reach for one more Klondike bar. And dude, I love Klondike bars. Okay. I'm right there with you. But there is a way that we are designed to operate and there's a way that we settle for. We, we settle for um, envy and jealousy and greed instead of the inexplicable joy of just being content with what it is that we have. Paul tells Timothy that, that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a very, very good thing. Instead of experiencing the peace that comes with knowing who you really are and seeing yourself in the right lens and with the right perspective, we, we settle for pride and we think that we're a really big deal and we think that just because of something that we're able to do or just because of something that we've accomplished, we're suddenly bigger and better than everybody else. We settle for that kind of stuff. Sin is a killer because sin has consequences. Okay, if you're a true crime fan, this is your moment, okay? We're gonna talk about murder for just a second, okay? You can laugh, it's okay. Um, but but um, I want to do just a thought experiment with you, just to talk about the, the ramifications of sin. And I chose murder because it's a really easy one, okay? When there's a murder, somebody loses a life, okay? If, if the killer is caught, they lose their freedom, presumably for a very long time, and, and the killer also has to somehow deal with what they've done. Okay, they have to deal with the fact that they have taken a human life. And usually one of two things happen. Either they are absolutely crushed and destroyed by the guilt and the shame that goes with that, or they become callous and they no longer think as highly of human life as they once did. One of those things happens because you have to deal with the brokenness of that. Okay, but not only there, it doesn't stop there. A family has now lost a loved one. A child has lost a father or mother. A father or mother has lost their child. A, a spouse has lost their significant other. There's all, all these down-the-line ramifications. There's a ripple effect to sin. But murder's an easy one. You can, you can do this at home. You can think through this at home with, with what some of the other sins do. But your anger, your pride, your lies, your greed, your jealousy, they affect other people too. Your sin is not a controlled explosion that only affects and, and hurts you. It's not isolated, but it does isolate you. You ever think about what Paul says in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death? You ever think about what that means? Like, um, so I'm a big soccer fan. I know that here in America, in American sports, we, we talk about contracts. And I just saw in the news that somebody turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract. Isn't that crazy? Um, but we, we, we deal in years and millions, right? But I'm a soccer fan, and in the soccer world, we talk about weekly wages, which wages just means what you get paid, okay? Do you ever think about, if, if that's what wages mean, then what you get paid for sinning is death, okay? And we're not talking about, like, you know, physical death, like, if you, if you sin, if you look at the wrong thing, God's striking you dead right then and there. Although, if you look in Scripture, sometimes that does happen. Okay, I'm not trying to scare you into that this morning. But what death means, okay, is, is destruction, decay, and breakdown of things, of relationships, of your physical body, of everything. That's what you get for sinning. That is your reward for sinning. That is the consequence of sinning. We sin against God, we sin against others, we sin against ourselves in some ways, and other people sin against us too. And sin is not a minor thing. 
okay? It needs to be addressed. That's why Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount, and you know, if you go there, it's in, in Matthew, I think, 5, 6, and 7, if I'm remembering right, if I listen in Sunday school. But um, as you go there, Jesus is laying all these things out, and he's saying, you've heard this, but I'm telling you now this, okay? And one of those things that he says, just as an example, is you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery, so what, it is, what is it that Jesus is trying to do there? Is he trying to widen the criteria so that he can like catch more of us in his net and say, okay, you guys are terrible, awful, awful, dirty, filthy sinners because it, you know, it used to be this, but I'm going to widen that so that I can get more of you. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think he's doing something else. Because here, here's the deal. If I, may, if I may take the liberty to say this, it is still better that you just think it and don't do it, okay? Let's just be honest about that. Because the second that it manifests into the real world, there's all these effects. There's these knock-on effects of what happens. So it's better to keep it in your mind. But Jesus is saying, I don't even want it there. I don't even want you to think about it. That's how far I want you to stay away from that stuff because the consequences are deadly. As I was getting ready for this message, I was thinking about secrets. Uh, and some of you may already be very well familiar with, with this. Um, it's probably intuitive to a lot of you, but just in case you're not, I would like to share this with you. I was reading on research about what happens when you keep secrets and what, what's going on in your brain when you keep secrets. And uh, as I read through this, we find that secret keeping has been linked to a number of things. First, a loss of relational intimacy. So you're not as close to your friends, you're not as close to your family, you're not as close to your significant other, and I would, I would throw in there, you're not as close to God. Uh, number two, you experience greater fatigue, you're just worn out all the time. Number three, we, you face higher anxiety and depression. Number four, feelings of isolation, uh, impaired focus and performance on tasks, and lower persistence. I don't know about you, but, you know, as I read Psalm 38, I see a lot of that stuff being borne out, and I just think it's really cool that that's another example of the Bible being like, yeah, you think? I told you. It's right there. And all these thousands of years later, researchers and psychologists have finally figured out that this is the reality. And how it works is when you keep a secret, it pits parts of your brain against each other. Because there, there are mechanisms in your brain that I can't pronounce, right, that, that, that are wired to, to let you live transparently and authentically, to, to let you live within the parameters of reality. Like, this is what's true, this is what happened, and you want to you wanna live in accordance with that. On the other hand, you also have a part of your brain that is wired for self-preservation or for preserving relationships. So if you have a secret, if you've got something that's going on, or if a friend has, has entrusted a secret to you, you don't want to convey that because the consequences may be too, too much. They may be too high. And so you've got this one part of yourself that's trying to live authentically and stay true, and you've got another part of yourself that wants to preserve itself. And these things work against each other, and it just wears your brain function down. That's how that works. And honestly, I think we can just swap the word sin in there for secrets. Everything that, you, that we just said about secrets is true of sin as well. Mostly just because we try to hide our sin, just like it's a secret. And the more we try to hide them by failing to confess them, by pretending they're not real, by downplaying their consequences, the more that stuff happens to us too. We get distant from each other. We get distant from God. We just get tired. We feel anxious. We feel depressed. All that stuff sets in to us as well. But here's the deal. Number two, if you're taking notes, 
dirty little secrets always come to light. One of the biggest lies that we buy into is that refrain at the end of the chorus, who has to know? Why should anyone know what's going on in my life? Why, you know, I, I've got it under control. It's fine. Why does anybody need to know? But here's the bottom line. Truth always comes out. It just does. Just, just like in the same way that, that you, can, you can add all these asterisks and, and, and qualifications, but at the end of the day, if you add two and two together, you're going to get four, right? It's just the reality. It's just true. And in the same way, the stuff that we have done always ends up coming to light. It may come to light in just a moment. When you fail to delete a text, when you forget to close a tab on your phone or on your computer, when you fail to, have a, to, to make sure that you're having a conversation in private and somebody overhears, okay? When you forget to hit reply and instead you hit reply all. You ever been there? Okay? It can happen like that. It could be after we're dead. How often do we find now that the people that were revered as heroes in, you know, decades gone by, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on, they're now villains because after they died, we found out what they did, what they said, what they were actually like, and now they get vilified. But the, the, the bottom line is the things that you do come to light. It could come to light after you're just going about your life and it's just affecting your behavior, and somebody finally picks up on that and says, what's going on there? What is up with you? But this stuff always comes to light. Consider a couple things that the Bible tells us about this. Okay, right here in, in, in this Psalm that we're in, Psalm 38, verse 9, this is what David said. He says, Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Or if you were here last week, Pastor Joe preached on uh, Psalm 139, and I love what he said about that. He said, depending on what you're going through, Okay, Psalm 139 is either going to read as incredibly, incredibly encouraging, or it's going to be very, very convicting. Okay? But here are the first three verses of Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all, all of my ways. The reality that David operated in was that God was aware of everything in his life. There was nothing he could keep a secret from God. Everything in his life was laid bare before God. So what about you? Do you operate in that? Or do you kind of maneuver and try to tell yourself, convince yourself, well, you know, God really cares about this thing that I do, but he doesn't care about this thing that I do, or, or whatever that looks like. What's the reality that you operate in? That God's aware, or do you try to hide it? In 1 Timothy 5.24, Paul's writing to Timothy, and it's a wonderful book where he's just giving a lot of very, very practical advice on, on pastoring and life in the church. And in, in 5.24, this is what he says. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Okay, or you could look at it like this, in, in, in this manner. You know some people are just a mess, right? Like there's some people and it's just obvious from how their life's going. It's like they've got some stuff going on that they need to get figured out. But other people have a facade and other people look like they're doing totally fine. But eventually that stuff comes to light. In Acts chapter five, you'll read about Ananias and Sapphira and the story's too long, so we're not gonna put it up on the screen. But you'll read about Ananias and Sapphira and they sold a piece of land and they lied about how much it was. 
And as it so happens, and this kind of goes over my head for right now, but God struck him dead for lying right then and right there. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, this is what Solomon writes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is why you exist, is to fear God and to obey his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here's the deal. You may not get found out anytime soon. But if you believe scripture, you can't get around the fact that one day all of your stuff is going to come to light. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? And I know that some of you are sitting here thinking like, okay, listen, I hear what you're saying, but you have absolutely no idea what this would do to my life. If I brought some of this stuff up, you have no idea how it would affect my marriage. You have no idea how it would affect my career. You have no idea what I did to my friend or what I said to my friend or what I thought about or gossiped about my friend. You have no idea. It's too dangerous for me to do that. Can I just encourage you to read your Bible? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more about what confession does for us. But what's your dirty little secret? What's your dirty little secret? Is it a problem, like an addiction that you're trying to beat, but you just are struggling to beat it? Is it, is it credit card debt or some other financial crisis that you are afraid to talk about because your spouse might think differently of you or your friends might think differently of you? Or if you actually deal with it, it might mean that you have to make a behavioral change in your life to, to get better in that situation. Maybe you've got a problem with pornography. Maybe you are misrepresenting your hours at work. Maybe you've been having an affair, whether it's physical or just, if you're listening, just as in air quotes, just emotional. Maybe you've cheated on an assignment or misrepresented yourself on a resume. Maybe you got a promotion or a position at work because you told a lie. And you just keep telling yourself, that same refrain time and time again. I've got it under control. I can quit. I can fix this. I can get out of it. I just needed to do this one time to get where I needed to go. We'll quit having sex. I'll put a filter on my computer. I'll start being honest next week. I'll deal with it later. But can I just tell you from experience, okay, just one more is a complete and utter lie. It just is, okay? In a, in a I mean, this is a joke, okay? I have told myself so many times, this is the last day I'm going to have chocolate cake for breakfast. And I keep going back and having chocolate cake for breakfast. Or when I was younger and when I made some poor decisions, I was like, okay, this is going to be the last thing that I charge to my credit card. Everything else I'm going to pay in cash and, and I'm only going to buy what I can afford. And you just keep doing that. And just one more, the problem with just one more is it puts the taste in your mouth. It gets you used to it again. You're like, oh, that was good. Okay, maybe just one more. And just one more turns into two and three and four and on and on down the line. You have to bring that stuff to light. Because eventually, one way or another, it will get there. So bring it before it gets worse. Bring it before the wounds stink and fester more. Bring it before you've destroyed more relationships or destroyed a relationship further than it already is. Bring that stuff to light. Don't take the risk. Number three, our dirty little secrets require a great confession. Toward the end of Psalm 38 in verses 17 and 18, we didn't read it at first, but this is what David says. He says, for I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. 
And we see in that that for David, who, by the way, was the man labeled a man after God's own heart, he, like, he gets that title in the Bible, okay? For him, the end of the pattern of sin is not trying harder. It's not a filter on his phone. It's not a support group. It's not creating new habits. Those things are all well and good. Use them if they're going to help you. Okay, but for David, the end of it was confession. That's where we have to go with this. I have to confess. When he's at the end of himself, when he's tired and he's weary, when he's worn out by all of his own sin and all of his foolishness, the thing that he sees fit to do is to confess and to repent, to bring it to light and then to turn away from it. That's what David did. He said, I confess my sin and I am sorry. So here's the reality and the hope, all in one. We have to confess our sin. We just do. But confession brings great healing. The one and only way to find healing from our sin, the festering, stinking, pulsating wounds that we experience, the brokenness that ensues out of our sin, the the dirty little secrets that you and I try to keep hidden away and try to manage ourselves, the way to get healing from that is to confess. And on the one hand, it's really not easy. It's, it's not. It's vulnerable. It's scary. Okay, I've been there. I can tell you that from experience. Because it means you have to be upfront. It means you have to look somebody in the eye, somebody that you love and or somebody that you respect, and you have to tell them, you have to say, listen, this is what I did. I'm sorry. You have to be real about it. And, and part of the tension, if I can speak to Christians in the room, which I know is probably most of you, but, you know, we understand that, that Jesus says that if someone offends you, if someone sins against you, you are to forgive them. Seventy times seven, he says. And if I'm doing my math right, which I may not, but if I'm doing my math right, that's like 490 times, okay? Can you imagine, proverbially speaking, someone taking the knife and just keeps sticking it into you 490 times? And after each and every time, They're like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I forgive you. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I forgive you. Can you imagine that? 490 times, if my math's right. Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot of pain. That's a lot of being sinned against. That's a lot of eating the cost. And that's difficult. So, here's what I want to caution you in. If you are feeling like you have to confess to somebody, don't go in assuming that they're just going to be totally cool about it. Okay? We have to be ready for that. Because it is hard to hear, I have, I've been sinning against you. It's hard to hear that. Okay? And, and, and their readiness and quickness to forgive, that is between them and God. But you have done the part that you need to do, which is bring it to the light. That's part of the risk. And if I can be frank with you, if you think confessing to another person is scary, it should be a lot scarier for us when we think about confessing to God. Here's what I mean by that. If you think about it, we're people, okay? Which means that you cannot and have not sinned against a person who has not and cannot sin against somebody else. You get what I mean? We are hurt people who hurt people. We are broken people who are just trying to to go through life and we want what we want and we walk over people on the way. And the people that we walk over have probably walked over some other people too. Okay, so, so between us, there's this great leveling that goes on because we're all messed up. So we sin against other broken, sinful people, but we don't sin against a sinful God. We sin against a sinless God. 
And that should, that should be brought into our perspective. Because yes, it's great that you know, we read our Bibles, we sing worship songs. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, he is long-suffering. There is grace. There is mercy for you. But he is God Almighty. And for us to just casually say, well, you know, Lord, I did this thing again, but you know, you, you know me, you got me, right? Like, it's, it's a tension, okay? I, I can't get up here without saying radical middle, but there's a radical middle between being super cavalier with God and between thinking that he's not going to forgive you, okay? Somewhere in there is where we want to operate with reverence because our sin is a true offense to God. But on the other hand, that is how you get healed. That is the, part, the necessary part of the process to get healed. And what a glorious healing that is. To be healed from the festering and stinking wounds of sin. To be healed from the sickness which causes the soundness in our bones to disappear. It affects our health. To be delivered from the very thing that is trying to kill and isolate and destroy us. Consider what scripture tells us about confession. James wrote a letter. James was the brother of Jesus. Uh, and it took him time to, to come around to Jesus being the Christ, but eventually he did, and he penned a letter. And in what we have called chapter 5, verse 16 of his letter, this is what James says. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Okay, can I just pause here to say, I think that James must have put to one another in there on purpose. Okay, because... I. I'm of the mind, if we, if we only ever confess and talk to God about our sin, okay? Listen, you and I are, are at risk of making God into our own image, and so God's going to start accepting some things and not thinking they're a big deal when, when they really are, okay? So it seems to me, just from reading the, the, the text right there, we have to confess to one another, and there, is, there are certain things that you need to share with certain people, and there are certain things you don't need to share with certain other people, and we're not going to get into that right now. But there is something to taking it to another person that is necessary. But he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's amazing. And then John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what a glorious reality. What a tense truth that we live in. That, that on the one hand, confession is scary. It's vulnerable. It's terrible. It stinks. I hate doing it. I, I hate doing it. I just do. And can I just say this, though? Confession will be infinitely harder for you if you think you're great. Okay, if you think you are God's gift to man and you have never lost an argument and you are always right and you never put a foot wrong, if that's what you think about yourself, then yes, confession will be very, very difficult because it's, it's difficult enough when you're truly aware of yourself. But confession is key to being healed. And you may find yourself thinking, why, if, that's, if it's so hard, if it's so difficult, why would God put us through such a terrible process? Here's why I think that's the case. I think confession is required simply because, and you may think this sounds so dumb, but God just does, is, isn't interested in you acting outside of reality. He's just not. Okay? Confession forces us to understand not only the weight, but the simple reality of our sin. Jesus put it this way. As, he, as he's teaching, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Okay, now he's saying that around Pharisees, and if you know anything about Pharisees, they kept the law, and they did a great job, and they didn't think anything was wrong to them, with them. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not going to do you any good. If you think you're great as you are, I'm not going to do you any good. 
But if you recognize that you're sick, if you recognize that you need help, then I can help you. If you don't see the reality of your sin, you won't see the reality of forgiveness. And while sin ought not be our primary focus, it shouldn't be the only thing we ever talk about. As a church, we're not just trying to create a community of not sinners, okay? You're going to continue to struggle. I promise you, you are. It's a, it's a key part of the picture, though, because sin provides context to the world that we're living in. Sin, both ours and other people's sin, provides, it, it, it helps us understand the broken world that we live in. Because sin is what makes us quarrel with each other. It's what makes us put ourselves before anyone else. It's what causes us to neglect people in need. It's why we fight with each other. It's why we disagree with each other. It's what makes us greedy. It's what makes us jealous. It, it, it makes us lust. And as we've seen, the natural end of that is that it exhausts us, kills us, and isolates each, us from each other and from God. Sin is the cancer of the human condition. But there's good news. The good news is that God is aware of this and that God made a way for us to be restored to him. Because somewhere in the region of 2,000 years ago, God took on a body. He became flesh and blood. Emmanuel, God with us, walking around on this old ball of dirt. And Jesus lived sinlessly. He never put a foot wrong. If he was angry, it was divine anger. When he was, uh, when he was grieved, it was divine grief. His fatigue and his hunger were human. He was God and man. And Jesus showed the Father. Jesus came and he showed us what God looks like. And that didn't sit with some people. <laughs> okay? People, people had their ideas of what God was really like. He was this, he was that, and the other. And other people said, no, he's this and that and the other. But Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And people didn't like him for that. And they put him to death on a cross. And we're kidding ourselves if we say we wouldn't have done the same. But as they were doing this, Jesus cried out to the Father. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus was crucified. He breathed his last and the soldiers pierced his side and blood and water came out, which meant he's really dead. But three days later, just as his followers were mourning the loss of the person that they were convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt was going to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth, he rose. Jesus Christ defeated death once for all. He ascended to the Father where he now intercedes on the behalf of those who believe in him, trust, them, trust him for their salvation, and order their lives according to his teaching. Because of what Jesus accomplished, you and I can enjoy a, a restored relationship with God the Father. And it's a good life. It's not an easy life. I'm not going to tell you that, that life with God means that you get every single thing that you want and everything goes your way and you never fight with anybody or have conflict. That's not what it means. But it's a good life because we get to experience the presence of God on a daily basis. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. If you're here and you've got a dirty little secret, you've got something that is driving you crazy, it's killing you, it's stinking, it's festering, it's put you on your own, it's breaking you down, it's too heavy for you, bring it. Bring it. Let's bring the things that are killing us into the light. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing one last song, and there are people up here who want to pray with you. If you've been coming here for a long time, you know how we do this. Okay, but these people are up here to pray with you, and I don't want you to miss that opportunity. So as I was thinking about this, I felt stirred to invite 
a few certain groups of people. Uh, maybe you're feeling the weight of the necessity of confession, that you're trying and trying and trying and trying, but you need to confess. You need to bring some things to the light. And you need courage to take that step because it's hard. If that's where you are, I want to encourage you to come pray. Okay? Don't feel like you have to tell the prayer person everything. Okay? But if you need the courage to do that, come pray. Some of you have been hurt by the sins of other people, and they never got brought to light for that. They never got brought to justice. It's not fair for you to be sitting with the pain that they caused you, and they have faced no consequence whatsoever. If that's where you're at, and you need some encouragement, and you need some hope, I want you to come and receive prayer this morning. Some of you are feeling the festering and the stinking and the isolation, and that's where you are this morning. I want to encourage you to come and pray. And then finally, some of you are afraid to come because you feel like God's run out of, of, of patience and grace with you. Can I just tell you that he hasn't? He, he, he hasn't. You can come. You can come and confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to encourage you to do that. And just a note, okay? As a community, as a body of believers, I want to encourage you, if you see someone going up to receive prayer, do not do that thing in your head where you're like, oh, I wonder what they're dealing with, okay? We need Jesus, all of us. I need me some Jesus this morning. You need some Jesus this morning. So when someone comes to receive prayer, they're just meeting with God, and that's an amazing thing. So as we stand to our feet, we're going to pray, and we're going to sing one final song, and I want to encourage you, if you're in a place where you need someone to lay a hand on you and pray with you, come receive that this morning. Father, as we come before you this morning, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for, for such a great salvation. And we don't want to neglect that, Lord. Your mercy is amazing. Your grace for us is amazing. Your patience with us is amazing. And we want to say thank you. Father, some of us are dealing with some stuff and we just need some help. We know that it's killing us. We know that it's not good for us. We know that it is causing the soundness in our bones to disappear because we've been trying to manage it. We've been trying to, to just say that we'll try a little harder and eventually we'll be able to stop. And Lord, it's, we're just at the end of it. God, would you meet us here? Would you let your kingdom break through in this place this morning? And God, would you meet us with hope and would you meet us with healing? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.